0: Hello to everyone out there. Uh, My name is Bert Hansen. My field is the history of science and medicine, and I recently retired after about 20 years of teaching at Baruch College at the City University of New York. Before that, I had taught for 20 years at the University of Toronto, NYU, and Binghamton University. I've been asked to talk about a few of the popular graphic images that I collected from my research and later donated to the Yale Medical School Library. Uh, we have just a tiny sampling of the more than a 1,000 prints given to Yale and to other consortium libraries, including the Science History Institute in Philadelphia and the New York Academy of Medicine here in the city. My examples are chosen to suggest what can be discovered about medical history and the history of science from popular cartoons. I believe a careful look can offer some surprising insights. If you were a student in medical history as I was, and your sources were entirely verbal, you might well wonder what medical practice actually looked like in the past that you were studying. Formal portraits were being made, but doctors there looked just like bankers or statesmen. And I was curious about practitioners in action. Doctors didn't always wear white coats or carry stethoscopes. I also wondered about medical offices, what they looked like, and what kind of attitudes people had about doctors. My curiosity was centered on America and the late 19th century. And my best evidence turned up in a surprising place. Political cartoons and social satire found in weekly magazines with a national distribution. And as you can see, they were printed in color for a colorful era. Let's look at a few before I say more about these publications as the initial stage in what became a truly mass media America. These two appeared on the cover of a magazine called Puck. It was modeled on the British magazine Punch. Note the figure of Puck at the top left, as this character will appear inside some of our cartoons. We will also see pages from a competing magazine called The Judge. Each week, both publications mailed out a 16-page issue with colored cartoons like these on the front cover, but also a grand centerfold almost two feet wide. The back covers were also printed in color. These eye-catching prints helped sell the magazine. Let's look again at our first two images. In 1890, this cartoonist is making fun of a tiny Benjamin Harrison, president at the time, and 23rd man in that office. He was deemed so unworthy in comparison to his grandfather, the ninth president, William Henry Harrison, that Uncle Sam had to use a microscope. The caption tells us this is the smallest specimen yet. And some of you will notice that at this time, Uncle Sam still carries a strong resemblance to Abraham Lincoln. Let me note that while microscopes were still rare in medical practice, they were familiar to much of the general public who saw magazines like this, because they were commonly used in amateur nature study, as well as by chemists and mineralogists. On the right now, two years later, a different artist for the same magazine shows support for Harrison, on the other side, as a candidate by the Republican convention. We see a bottle called Harrison Renomination Medicine, and a huge spoon is being forced on a childlike patient Named Tom Platt, the boss of the New York Republican Party. Caption reads, He's got to take it. And the unpleasant medicine is delivered to New York by the National Republican Party in a Roman toga. Now, as we look at more of these cartoons, caricatures, and parodies, I hope you'll come to agree with me that despite all the exaggerations for comic effect, these drawings can help us picture the medicine at that time. And we'll also discover some of the popular attitudes it provoked about a century ago. Now, if we explored all the political positions in these cartoons, it would take us far away from science and medicine and a lot more time. I will not take time to name most of the political figures or explain their positions. But note that in the era we are visiting here, the Republican Party usually took a progressive position, and the Democratic Party was a conservative one. Alignments that would be reversed a few decades later, Uh, and the the later regime is the one we still have today. Now, let's turn to the medicine, the 1880s and 90s, and we'll look for evidence of how ordinary people who read these magazines, how those people picture the tools, remedies, activity, and dress of contemporary healers. Uh, But you were still invited to explore the politics of these cartoons on your own if you're curious. And to help do this, you'll find on the web page, under the resources tab, a study guide. And that study guide will have a listing of all my images in this talk, as well as the names of people in the images. Here, the cartoonist is making fun of three political leaders pictured as physicians, who consult about what to do for a sick Democratic Party. It's 1884. Again, we see boxes of pills and bottles of tonics as the primary remedies they could offer. No high technology medicine yet. Uh, Dr. Dana, editor of the New York Sun newspaper says, it's the bad Republican nomination cordial that may pull the old fellow through, referring to a weak opposing candidate. You'll notice the doctors are all in suits, that the patient is at home, not in the hospital, and that that there are no nurses present to care for the patient. Remedies are limited to, to pills and potions. In this large centerfold from 1883, we have a chance to observe more medical technology in a scene captioned, a dreadful attack of presidential fever in the U.S. Senate. You'll notice the figure of Puck dosing one senator with quinine, a common fever medication of the time. And we also see the ice packs and foot baths that viewers were expecting to see. But let me note the absence of two medical tools that have not yet become common for doctors or nurses, although both existed. They were not yet common the stethoscope and the thermometer, even in a scene here about fever. You can see a large thermometer down in front, but it's not for use on people only to measure water temperature. Shortly, you will see pictures that include the scary tools of old-time dissection and surgery, plus the newly invented hypodermic syringe. Also, as we go along, keep an eye out for what the doctors are wearing. Here, a microscope is used in, in a public lecture by the editor of the Sun newspaper, a Democrat, to closely examine the record of James A. Garfield, the Republican nominee for president. It's 1880. His enlarged drawing labels the scary creatures seen in the microscope as fraud, bribery, lies, perjury, and scandals. Now, although the drawings make them look like the minute organisms found in pond water and used in many such demonstrations, we shouldn't think of them as germs. Since this is the time prior to the identification of disease germs under microscopes, which will become common only by the end of the century. It's a good reminder to read images as much as we can in their historical contexts. Although this is not medical, I can't resist sharing another beautiful instrument of science, a carefully rendered telescope on the cover of another comic magazine, the one called The Judge. Here in 1896, just before the election, we see Uncle Sam as an astronomer and a celestial body. Labeled Brian's 53 cent dollar, a sarcastic reference to William Jennings Bryan's unsuccessful attempt for silver to replace the gold standard of US currency. As the caption makes clear, it's only a comet, it will soon be out of sight. That silly idea in the view of the cartoonist. Now, it's interesting that Bryan's flamboyant style was a very popular target for cartoonists. But this print shows how a clever artist can leave Brian out of the picture entirely and still create an elegant image with bite. Now here we see three senator surgeons ready with their large amputation saws along with a bottle of senatorial chloroform for the patient. Another senator takes the patient's pulse using his pocket watch. The patient they hope to save by a major amputation is McKinley tariff bill. A bad prognosis is indicated by the title, Dangerous Doctors for a Desperate Case. Now, in in the 1890s, the people who saw this cartoon, the amputation of part of a limb was indeed a surgery that was performed, but only in extreme cases because of a risk of your bleeding to death or dying of infection. Uh, And I would note that the surgeons on the left have aprons like butchers, not lab coats or scrubs. And the pulse-taking doctor is in street clothes. Now, such amputations, although rare at this time, were known to the general public because thousands had been performed, maybe tens or hundreds of thousands, for battlefield wounds during the Civil War 30 years earlier. And while only about half of those injured men survived this operation, there were the other half, many veterans using crutches and clumsy prosthetics, and they were a visible public presence on the streets of America to the end of the century. Now, chloroform had come into use by this time. It was rare during the Civil War. It had come into use to moderate pain during childbirth or surgery, But it carried its own risks, it was not always safe, and it offered no pain control once the operation was over. You couldn't live on chloroform uh, while you were recovering for days or weeks. Uh, We'll come back to that issue in a minute. Now, as we move here from surgery to autopsy, we find the same tools and the aprons again. Always tiny, President Harrison is seen working with the newspaper editor White Law Reed to perform a postmortem on a dead elephant, a Republican elephant, to discover what had killed the Republican Party. They discover it had died from swallowing an utterly indigestible object, as I put it, namely the McKinley Tariff bill that was featured in our last cartoon. A few months later, Puck pictured the Republican Party still alive, but nearing her end, in the figure of an elderly woman. Chloroform could be helpful during operations, but afterwards, and for other kind of pain control, morphine was the drug that was used. Morphine was a 19th century laboratory purification of the natural opium from poppy plants, which had been used in crude form since antiquity. And Rather than being swallowed like most medicines at the time, morphine was pure enough that it could now be injected into a patient through a hollow steel needle joined to a syringe, a recent innovation uh, and, and quite unusual at the time and notable. This cartoon shows that the public, the general public, was expected to recognize the doctor's syringe as well as the feel-good effects of this powerful drug. It's used to relieve extreme pain at the end of life was also familiar to the public as we see the image of a fading Republican Party is captioned, easing her last days. Now here I wanna pause a minute to recall the history of newspapers and the rise of the penny press in this era. So we have some context for these publications. Daily newspapers dating back to Ben Franklin and Paul Revere in Colonial Times had been local affairs for a town or city produced by hand in small numbers on a flatbed up and down press. But by mid-century, mid-19th century, we had a steam engine, and the new steam engines could power rotary presses to roll out copies, not flat up and down, but rotary copies in large numbers. Now, with the reduction in time and cost, publishers changed their business model. Instead of collecting payments from loyal subscribers, they reduced the newsstand price first to a nickel and then to a penny, in a new competition for readers. Their income now came from the advertisers attracted to a much larger market. Competition raised the level of sensationalism and produced the invention of new kinds of articles, including interviews with newsmakers and the human interest story. Publisher Joseph Pulitzer was a leader in this transformation. With the National Railroad Network having been completed in the 1860s, newspapers could now be moved great distances overnight and thus could serve a national readership that was seeking fresh news each day. Since the newspapers freely copied articles from each other, uh, the same news could be read all across the country at almost the same time. This is really quite an innovation. Magazines like the one we've been looking at likewise gained a national audience thrilled by their color lithographs and these magazines are moved through the mails on those same trains. Now the mechanics of how you made plates for those daily newspapers rotary presses meant that an image in a paper almost always unlike in magazines had to be tiny enough uh, we'd say thumbnail size to fit inside the width of a narrow column of text. Uh, Because of all these changes, it's meaningful after about 1875 to picture America as having a truly mass media at the national level for the first time. And this means for historians of this era that we are able to speak credibly of common national understandings and attitudes. Now, reflecting back on America's shared picture of medical care, let's remember that most of medicine had not changed for hundreds of years or more. Most doctors practiced all their lives doing what they learned at the start, using just the same tried and true remedies. But there were a few notable exceptions, and they started abruptly in 1885, something my next cluster of images will show. But before we look at those novelties, we have a good transition with this curious cartoon from 1884. The message of this wonderful print is confusing to people today since we live in a time when medicine, medical education, and medical philanthropy are appreciated and applauded. Here we see the character Puck trying to stop the richest man in America, who was named William Vanderbilt, from giving a half million dollars to the College of Physicians and Surgeons, a school later named the Columbia University Medical School. Puck's artist and the editor publisher believed that supporting the training of young doctors would bring more deaths, not more cures. And the happy undertaker in the background confirms this negative picture of the prospects of medical education. But within less than a year of this 1884 cartoon, Americans will completely reverse that belief, and they will want to applaud an astounding new medical discovery and they will begin a clamor to support the latest medical breakthroughs coming from laboratories. Such a widespread revolution in thinking could take place only because of the news distribution that was made possible a international media. Now, what was the first medical breakthrough? It was the 1885 revelation by a French chemist, Louis Pasteur, that his new injections could prevent the appearance of rabies, also called hydrophobia, In persons bitten by rabid dogs, American cities were filled with stray dogs. Dog bites were very common. And once rabies symptoms appeared after a bite, death was certain. It wasn't just likely. It was 100% fatal disease. And you see in the picture on the left the small images that appear in a column of text. And the bigger images on the middle and right that could appear in magazines for because of different technology production. Now, ordinary people understood the threat of rabies, and they responded with unprecedented enthusiasm for Pasteur's new treatment. When the New York City area's first dog-bite victims after Pasteur's announcement were mentioned in the Daily Papers in early December 1885, people began contributing funds that very day to pay for the children's trip to Paris for treatment. And newspapers were... the organizations that collected these donations and published the names of people who gave donations. Instantly, papers all across the country got involved. The new rabies treatment story dominated the front page and retained its prominence in the news for months. I'm sorry we lack time to explore Pasteur's own story now, as I've written a lot about it, but this political cartoon that appeared less than a week after the first reports of dog bite victims sailing to Paris shows how the story had become totally familiar for the public. This cartoon would make no sense unless the average person was all up-to-date and involved in that sensational story. The caption proclaims, Another patient for Pasteur. Let him be taken to Paris and treated for Blaniac rabies without delay. What we see is two newspaper editors Who, who had already abandoned their own support of Republican James G. Blaine who lost the election in 1884 to reform Democrat Grover Cleveland. They've abandoned Blaine, but this man, the patient is not. They are carrying on to a Paris-bound ship another editor who still suffers the madness of a commitment to Blaine. Since rabies is a form of madness or mania, and since maniac can be rhymed with blaniac, He becomes a maniac needing the new treatment in Paris for Blaniac rabies. Uh, This is all rather convoluted for our tastes. And the image is not as graphically elegant and powerful as a few others we've seen. But it's a wonderful piece of historical evidence to show just how quickly the Pasteur Treatment story was something everyone in the country was talking about. And here's another example from a little bit later. Two months later, the magazine The Judge found a clever way in this centerfold to connect with the popularity of Pasteur's discovery in a remarkable vignette near the bottom center of this diverse collection of figures that were arrayed like the statues in a crowded wax museum, um, even using the name of New York City's popular wax museum venue, the Eden Museum, which displayed a motley crowd of figures coming from politics, culture, literature, and history. Let's look more closely at the tall center cluster with three main figures. Starting at the top, we see Joseph Pulitzer, the man I mentioned before, publisher of the World Newspaper, and one of the main forces in creating the penny press and in capitalizing on ways to compete for readers. He's garbed as the Statue of Liberty since it was his paper's campaign that raised enough money from donations from readers to finally erect the Statue of Liberty that we have in New York Harbor. 10 years after the original funding sources had failed, he came to the rescue. Just below him, we see President Grover Cleveland, who's applying a vaccination to a squirming child, a child is a symbol of the Democratic Party. The museum labels the figure as Pastor Cleveland, inoculating democracy against the spoils of rabies. <clears throat> It confirms a popular awareness of Pasteur's rabies vaccine breakthrough while making the point that Cleveland used civil service reform that had been opposed by his own Democratic Party, but he used it as a way to protect the party from its old reputation as just a bunch of politicians collecting spoils when they held public office. But before we leave this remarkable centerfold print, let's note the figures just below President Cleveland. A politician in a Roman toga makes nice to the tiger that was the symbol of New York's Tammany Hall Club, a powerhouse of political patronage within the city. Uh, there's no need for me to explain this story now, except to note that the Tammany Tiger was as well recognized by the general public then as were the animals used for the major political parties, both then and now, the Democratic donkey and the Republican elephant, which we'll see in a minute. Our next two images refer to the second big medical breakthrough that became a press sensation in the United States. It was in 1889. A French medical scientist claimed he could restore vitality to aging men by injecting them with extracts from animal testicles. Not surprisingly, the public clamored for news and for the breakthrough treatment, just as it had for rabies shots a few years before. His name was Charles-Edouard brown sequard and his organ therapy is still celebrated as a founding episode of the science of endocrinology. Pulitzer appears again here, this time he is with another Democratic publisher. Together they are bringing in a very weak Tammany tiger for treatment by a brown-sacard figure with a very large hypodermic needle. The doctor declares, take them away, they are too near dead for treatment. And that very same week, Puck's centerfold cartoon uses the same medical discovery, uh, making a different political point. This image ridicules an expansion of federal benefits for aging Civil War veterans. The new benefits were parodied by exaggerating Brown's medical breakthrough, which was bringing youthful energy, it claimed, to youth to old men. Within the broad humor of this cartoon, the syringe has gotten even bigger and is now as big as the old time cluster pump used to give an animal. Then in less than two years, an even greater medical advance was claimed by the German research physician, Robert Koch. He claimed that the lymph he produced in the laboratory and named tuberculin, could cure active cases of tuberculosis, the 19th century's greatest killer. And even more than with Pasteur's rabies shots, and Brown Cicara's organ extracts. The response from the public and the press knew no bounds. Artists quickly adapted this enthusiasm with their own political messages. But I want to note that just as with the other breakthroughs, the cartoonists never mocked the scientific discoveries or the physicians and medical heroes responsible for them. They only used them to make political points. Once again, Judge is making fun of a worn-out and worthless Tammany Hall tiger when it shows two politicians with giant syringes. We have here no other signs of medicine beyond the syringes and tanks of lymph, except for one that is now passe, and you might not even recognize it, the high black hats. In the 19th century, doctors were often signaled by wearing a top hat, even while administering treatments, as in the next image as well. In Puck's alternative, it is not a Democratic tiger, but a Republican elephant that needs this latest treatment. The caption tells us that for a bad case of consumption, Dr. Blaine tries an injection of his reciprocity lymph. Note that this is the same James G. Blaine, many times a candidate for president, whose failure was mocked years earlier in the Blaniac-Rabies cartoon entitled Another Patient for Pasteur. Although Blaine is given a wizard's costume and hat, we can see that his physician colleague is taking a pulse from the elephant's tail. And this doctor's symbols, characteristic of this era, are the high hat and the pocket watch. No appearances yet of a stethoscope, thermometer, or a white coat. Now, with this scene, we complete our sample of the hundreds of historic graphics like these from these two magazines, preserved for study and research at the Yale Medical Library. And let me bring us back from the 19th century and into the present to say just a little about preserving historical artifacts. My collecting of prints like these started over 40 years ago with visits to print shops and listings on eBay. It was not a research project. I simply wanted images to illustrate undergraduate lectures. Very few items like these could then be found within library collections, although the New York Academy of Medicine and the National Library of Medicine did maintain print collections at that time. Almost by accident, some of my finds opened up new historical questions for me. Then years of research led to articles in a book called Picturing Medical Progress, which ranges from these early examples up to Hollywood movies, comic books, and Life magazine. In retirement, I've been cataloging for donation to libraries a few thousand prints, pamphlets, and ephemera which I had collected. Most have gone to Yale, but others to the Science History and Institute of Philadelphia, the New York Academy of Medicine, the National Library of Medicine, and a dozen other repositories where I think specific items will be most useful to students and researchers. My hope is. This short introduction will prompt more students to explore how stories of medicine and science are presented in the popular culture of the past, whether of these decades or other examples at other times. And my book can be a lead into that for other examples. Such exploration is much easier today than when I started working on this. At that time, I had to buy the prints I wanted to study. Your generation benefits from libraries that have digitized many prints in their collections and made them accessible on the internet with no need for you to travel Uh, it's a, a wonderful resource still let me say that it's far better to examine the originals than small pictures on a screen when you can so i hope you look for history of science images in person at museums in libraries and in archival collections to become familiar with their physical characteristics which often provide clues to understanding their history. Thank you very much.